Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Hello, everyone. My guest hails from the beautiful country of Ireland. Gordon Ferris is his name. He's an award-winning poet. He's now branched out into writing short stories. His first collection of short stories, Echoes, was released today. Greetings, Gordon. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm quite well. Congratulations, my friend. Yes, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's begin. I really want to know, how did you get started writing short stories? Um, I've been writing short stories a long, a long time, a long time even before I got published, you know. Uh, I, I had my first story, pub, first short story published in about 2014, you know. Mm-hmm. And I've had, I've had about 20, 25 published since, you know. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. But, but I was writing them a long time before that. Now, I never had the confidence to, to uh, submit them anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know? And then wow. it was the same with the poetry. You know, I, I had I'd been writing poetry a long time beforehand, before I got published. And when I did, the first thing I ever got published, I didn't even submit it myself. It was actually Rebecca Kennedy that submitted it for me on, on my behalf, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I did. I it was accepted, and I didn't even know I had submitted. <laughs> wow! You know, what do you view as being the biggest difference between writing short stories and writing poetry? Well, uh, they're very similar. You know, the, the I'd say. Poetry now is more of a trying to define something that you can't understand, you know, or or it's an experience or an emotion that you have that you don't quite understand, you know. Mm-hmm. So where where short stories are, they're like uh, taking they're like a like a diary, you know of your everyday life, you know, of everything that you can see. All right. Wow. All right. Now, you've written a book, Echoes. First, tell me yes. about the title. Tell me about the title. Uh, Echoes is, is Echoes kind of came up because uh, that's kind of what the stories are about. They're Echoes from my, my whole history, you know. So echoes from different stages of the last last years, you know. Right. So you're thinking about your life in general, and yeah. that inspired you to write the book to put the collection together. Yeah, well, uh, the book is the book is is fictions first of all, you know. It's a, t- a toned down version of of my life, you know. 
Because to be honest with you, if I told you the truth about my life, nobody would believe it. Yeah. <laughs> right, all right. <laughs> all right. So as you think about what you've written, what are some of yeah. the predominant themes in the book? What do you write about? Um, I'd say the predominant themes in it is, is uh, like when the, when the book was, when the book is set is back in the early 70s. I'd say it's how women were treated, you know, mm-hmm. how how men were reared to be the, the dominant species here, like, and and how women were were treated but very badly. They were sub- treated to, they were subservient to men, and I that that was very wrong, you know. So I I hope that I got that point across, you know. Mm-hmm. Any, anything else that you view as being a predominant thing? Um, it's how a lot of a, a lot of people um, had their decisions made for them, you know, mm-hmm. especially about education. You know, it was nobody's fault. It was just the circumstances. You know, mm-hmm. like people couldn't afford to send the kids on. on they, they had to leave school at fourteen or fifteen to bring a wage into into the house. You know. So being a young man growing up in Ireland was potentially fraught with difficulty sometimes. Oh, it, it was, yeah. You had very limited prospects, you know, mm-hmm. especially if you're, work, if you're a working class man. You know? right. you, you'd very, you had very little option to go to university, no matter how intelligent you were. You know, if your family couldn't afford to send you, you, you weren't sent. Well, without further ado, everyone, Here's Gordon Ferris, and he will be joined by Simon Ferris and Rebecca Kennedy. Gordon, you're on. Okay, right. I'm going to start by reading a few poems. Um, The first poem is called Putting the Words Down. All I ever wanted is to put words on paper, but life got in the way because love made my day because a bigger love came along and joyously blocked my way. I envisaged the dilemma of Pandora, imaginings beyond her wildest temptation to open the wandering jar, her expectant prize, uncertainty, darker than her past was bright. And uh, this is called White Lies. When you lie and walk away, it looks like there are no consequences for that lie. But when you walk away, does your warmth turn into ice? Are your eyes expressionless? Does your truth ooze forth from your pores, bulging, bursting to get out into the world? And now I'm going to read a story from my collection, Echoes. It's called Silent Thoughts. this story, this story is uh, the main character. Jordy is after coming is staying with his sister, his sister's house where he's babysitting for the weekend, and he's on his own at the end of the night after his sister and brother are gone out, and he's left babysitting their the daughter Dora. Uh, silence. With the volume of the TV torn down, there was silence. At last, time to think. But for Dora sleeping upstairs, I was alone. The first thing on the agenda is the fridge. 
check out the fridge. All unhealthy foods must be removed and assumed. It's for my big sister's benefit. She's trying to lose weight after giving birth 10 months ago. Nothing to do with my having an extremely sweet tooth and being greedy and not wanting to share. It's purely an altruistic act on my behalf for the benefit of those who live in this house. Thank God Dora doesn't need solid yet. I would feel compelled to bring her down and share these delights with her. But she's not eating solid yet, and she's not getting any. My feet up now with food resting on my chest, the TV down low, being, being ignored for now. And all this distraction of my usual Friday, I was forgetting the fact that it had been my last day at school. It felt no different, no sudden feeling or anything changed, or priorities changed, or being laden down with sudden responsibility. No suddenly waking up and feeling like a man with a fully grown beard and being wise. I had a little bit of doubt in the back of my mind as to if I was making the right decision and finish the school. I could change my mind if I wanted it. I had until September. That's provided I passed my intercert. I thought I had done better than I, ex- than I had expected. So maybe I could surprise everybody. I may put those thoughts in the back of my mind until September. Start looking for a summer job on Monday. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. My attention now was drawn to a marriage to the marriage photo of Maeve and, and Maeve and Dave. I remember their reception, my first experience of an adult event involving al- alcohol. I remember them dating. There had been one or two boyfriends before Dave, but none lasted. They soon became a regular feature around the house. I had good, ma- good memories of Maeve growing up. She looked after me as a child and seemed to like to take me out for the day. Out from under my mom's feet, she used to say. My mom struggled to hold down a part-time job and look after all six of us, doing almost everything in the house herself. As my three sisters got older, they helped a bit, and the older they got, they resented having to do all the chores in the house, while myself and my older and younger brother did as little as possible. As it turned out, Maeve took a shine to me. I used to take me to all sorts of places. I remember when I was about 10, she, she got a job at Teddy Rentals, and every Thursday after getting paid, she would bring me home loads of sweets, bought and over to her on her way home. On other days, she would bring me to the Zoya Cinema in our Collins Street, never to see films that I would like, always to see Elvis Presley films. She was mad about Elvis Presley. Other times in the summer, when dry, she would take me on the bus to the zoo where just for a ramble around Phoenix Park. There's one time in particular that sticks out in my mind. She took me and my younger brother and sister to St. Stephen's Grade for a day out. We were a right handful that day, and she just, just about managed us without losing the plot altogether. I remember her efforts trying not to swear in front of us, using the words flip, flip, and fecker, fecker, instead of the other F word. She got us chips and forties in our Collins Street. And then we headed across the bridge up the Lear Street and Grafton Street to Stephen's Crane, where we sat on the grass watching the throng of people go by and wondering at the funny talking Americans who end every sentence with, Everything is just wonderful, wondering what exactly was so wonderful. Near the end of our outing, I don't know how it happened, 
but somehow I ended up waist high in the pond with a gang of young boys and girls pointing, laughing at me. I, ju- I was just playing with my two siblings, trying to get away from them, when suddenly I realized I was heading for the water and I couldn't stop. Maybe I thought the floating leaves were solid and I could step across them like stones to reach the pretty purple flower that grew in solitary splendor on the other edge of the foliage. Or perhaps I just thought I could walk on water like Jesus. For whatever reason, that's where I ended up. I made my way out as fast as I could and rushed over to where we were sitting. Maeve, embarrassed but staying calm, began gathering our stuff and sat us for us to part quickly, as quickly as possible, telling me not to worry about it, and at the same time, at the same, telling me not to worry about it at the same time. The journey across town was hurried down Grafton Street, on past Trinity College, Delir Street, and instead of going down Connell Street, we headed down Marlborough Street to avoid the crowd. Now on our way to where, on our way to get the bus from Abbey Street. Standing self-consciously at the, at the bus stop between the Metro and the Shakespeare pub, where the bus drivers went for their liquid breaks, leaving the doors closed and the passengers standing in the cold and rain. My trousers had dried a bit from the brisk walk across the town. Then, then no longer dripped, leaving a trail of water after me. Eventually, after what seemed like an eternity, the driver emerged from the metro humorously getting on and starting and a rush started for the door of the bus. May paid the bus fare, paying just myself, saying the kids were underage, staring into the driver's eyes with a smile. Driver let her away with it. We got a seat on, on the long we got a seat on the long seat inside the door, and before long the bus was full and we were on our way. Relieved to be on the bus and on the way home, I settled into my daydreaming, but I wasn't allowed to for too long, with the ranting of this breathless old bat standing in front of me, sweating in her winter heavy coat, her grey hair emitting droplets of water onto our nose. She moaned about the youth of the day, had no manners, letting the lady stand while, while they took up a seat. May have tried to explain to, explain to her that she wouldn't appreciate the seat. But the big woman just wouldn't listen until Maeve, fed up listening to her, made me stand up saying to her, there you are now, I tried to tell you that's that. But before she could finish, the woman caught her off, scolding me for not giving her the seat in the first place. Maeve just told her she's welcome with a grin and winked towards me. I moved out of the woman's sight in the tram well at the middle door, behind an old woman smoking a speed afternoon. I knew it was a speed afternoon because my dad smoked there. I could see the woman sitting proudly in, my, in her seat, nothing strange yet, but suddenly I could see her shift in her seat. Slight movements at first, gradually showing signs of more discomfort, as she realised there was a reason for me not giving her the seat in the first place. I was looking straight into her face when she suddenly looked in my direction, with disgust in her eyes, as if I, as if I was dirt and she had, that she had shot in. I smiled in her direction, and her face seemed to turn purple, and she got up in a rage to depart the bus of glass now. It's getting off already, 
Wasn't worth your while sitting down, was it? Maeve said with a friendly, sarcastic smile. You know rightly. Yeah, that's right. Uh, getting off already, hardly worth a while. You knew rightly that seat was wet, the woman said. But Maeve said, well, I tried to warn you, but you wouldn't listen. Serves you right, you might listen to in future. She went on her way, and before long, we were home. For I could hear Dave and Maeve's cheerful entrance. Muffled chatter, the held-in laugh that trying not to wake Dora from her peaceful slumber. But it was the smell of the fish and chips that smothered in salt and vinegar that roused me from my reflections. I jumped up from my stretched out position on the couch on the seated position, expecting their entrance at any minute. They went straight through into the kitchen, trying to wind me up, knowing I'd be sitting up in excited expectation, or maybe I never, I never caused them a thought. I went straight into them, through the adjoining doors. Davis taking his brown pinstripe jacket off and throwing it on the hooks on the back of the door leading into the hall. May was brushing her wind-tossed blonde hair with a rotten cigarette stuck in her mouth. Ah, oh, there you are. Thought you were going to bed early. Did Madam wake? Referring to Dora, she said without looking at me, without looking at me, not wanting to spill the ash on, on the table as she brushed her hair. Not a sound out of ours, not after I hit her with the wooden mallet, I said, waiting for the good human, good humoured, telling me they'd kill me if I dared. She asked me if I wanted bread, that if I wanted bread, I could get up off my arse and get it myself. She said this to a mouthful of fish and chips. There was bags of chips and a bit of fish there for me, so I could, so I got two slices of bachelor and buttered tick. Buttered it tick to build up my cholesterol for my future heart condition. I joined the two of them in the living room, where we, we munched in silence, while we watched TV, muted, not knowing what we were watching. I remember I reminded the invitation for dinner on Sunday, to which Maeve corrects me. She's coming out for a drink on Sunday. Ma and Da are going to the club on Sunday, not for dinner yet, back in Egypt yet. Oh, I know. I knew that. I was just testing you, I said. There was a few moments of silence, now just the sound of falling and rising jaws in the process of eating. Funny how all pleasurable consumer was or bad for earlier health. Some using on TV, so they put some volume on, not too loud, just right, so we could still talk. He asked what time I was going home on Saturday, and if I had time, I could give him a hand, the car get fixed. I was secretly delighted to this, but didn't show it. An extra pound in, in the back pocket, although my ma would go mad if she knew I'd accept the payment for it. The assistance given to the family. But one thing my dad taught me growing up was never to say no to money. Because if you get a reputation for saying no to money, people might stop offering it to you. I'm starting to get tired now. May have suggested I go to bed. I need an second help. In minutes, I was in bed, relaying the day over in my head. It still hadn't sunk in that this was my last day in school. From now on, it was a new world. I should be living a new, 
I should be leaving all childish things behind me now and start living the life of the long trousered ones. And then there was blackness. Sleep would call up with me. Now, I'm going to hand the mic over to uh, Rebecca. Rebecca Kennedy is going to read a few stories. Hello. Okay, I'm just going to shoot on. Okay. Okay, so this is called The Trial of Isabella Welm, 1693, by Rebecca Kennedy. Sunlight flooded through the windows of the courtroom. The good and honourable Judge Dalloway took his seat, and with him, the public parked themselves on the hardwood benches arranged in the gallery. Isabella Welm sat in the accused box to the immediate right of the judge. The accused, a woman of ill repute in her 38th year, crossed her arms and scowled. Prosecuting barrister Lawrence Breachway took a sip of his honeyed lemon drink before sauntering to the middle of the courtroom. He smoothed back his golden blonde hair and unleashed a glittering smile upon the gallery. Hear ye, hear ye, he bellowed. We gather here today under the eye of God to try the accused, Miss Isabella, sorry, Miss Isabella Welm, of entering a compact with the devil and enacting witchcraft upon this good village. The courtroom erupted in shrieks, gasps, and murmurs. Why are you all gasping? said Isabella, sitting forward. We all know why we're here. You've been queuing outside the door since sunrise. Silence, wench, barked Judge Dalloway. Isabella rolled her eyes and slumped against the back of her seat. How do you answer to the charges against you, said Barrister Breachway. Innocent of all charges, said Isabella coolly, except throwing the stone at the fat little kid. Clocked him right between the eyes, I did. Harlot, screamed Miss Atkins from the gallery. Her son, a plump boy of seven, beside her massaged the purple lump on his forehead. Innocent are you, said Barrister Breachway. Is it not true that you bear the witch's mark? What? said Isabella. You know, said Barrister Breachway. He glanced at Isabella's bosoms and raised his eyebrow. She recoiled from him and threw her arms over her chest. Barrister Breachway waited for Isabella to, Isabella to take the hint. He looked out at the gallery. The public shook their heads and exchanged looks of bewilderment. Your Barrister Breachway mumbled something. Pardon? said Isabella. Your, said Barrister Breachway, turning beetroot beneath his mop of blonde hair. <clears throat> nipples. Oh, said Isabella. Yes, I do possess nipples, sir, but on close inspection, I think you'll find that you do too. Judge Dalloway chuckled. It is not a question of possession, but of quantity, snapped Barrister Breachway. Is it not true you have more than the God-given amount? Oh, yes said Isabella with a sly smile. Unburden me of my garments, and you shall see my many nipples, several of which are pierced. Isabella winked at the gallery. Master Thornbottom suddenly stood up. She cursed me with pox of the genitals. The members of the gallery surrounding Master Thornbottom inched away. Yes, said Master Proctor, taking a stand at the other side of the gallery. And on a completely unrelated note, 
She also cursed me with the pox of the genitals. Can the record show that Sadia Thornbottom is shooting Michael Proctor a most inconspicuous look, said Judge Dalloway. The courtroom stenographer scribbled furiously across her parchment. This trial is ridiculous, said Isabella. My accusers are two 12-year-old girls pretending to be afflicted with fits and pipes of hysteria. Your point being, said Barrister Breachway, my point is that there's very little to do around here, said Isabella. Perhaps the girls are throwing around accusations of witchcraft, because if it weren't for the trice and month hanging, there would be absolutely no fun in this village at all. Barrister Breachway, as head of the local Prayers and Recreation Committee, took this as a personal slight. He was aghast. Miss Wang, he said, are you insinuating that living according to a strict Puritan lifestyle, attending church service three times daily, and whipping yourself whenever you have sinful thoughts is not fun? I am. Are you not aware that the Prayers and Recreation Committee have recently added bells to the self-regulation whips? St. Marister said Barrister Breachway, turning to the gallery with his most charming smile. One reviewer said that if whipping himself was a song, whipping his wife and children was a symphony. I'm aware of the bells, said Isabella defiantly. I'm not a fan. Barrister Breachway bent down and pretended to fix a buckle on his boot so he could wipe away a tear. Master Hawthorne, a gentle mustachioed man who owned a local apothecary, slowly rose from his bench and coughed. Speak freely, Master Hawthorne, said Judge Dalloway. I doubt the truthfulness of the afflicted girls, said Master Hawthorne. Finally, said Isabella, casting her hands up, someone with a bit of sense about them. My maidservant, said Master Hawthorne. Miss Mary Phillips displayed the same uncanny behaviour of the afflicted. I find that a good beating cured her of her symptoms permanently. Isabella bit her fist. Even if the afflicted girls are being deceitful, said Master Breachway, that does not mean that Isabella Wellen here is not a devotee of witchcraft. It is not true that you are guilty. Is it not true that you were guilty of practicing foolish rituals and superstitions to ward off ill harm and evil? Just then, the medical horse and cart rushed by the courthouse, the ringing of its alarm bells spilling through the open windows. The courtroom fell silent as its inhabitants bowed their head and blessed themselves in unison. The only ritual I adhere to, sir, said Isabella, is the smoking of my pipe at the end of a long day. No superstitions or rituals, eh, said Marister Breachway. Answer me this, Miss Wellen. Did you or did you not instruct Miss Carter that she was to wash her hands before she prepares meat? Isabella rolled her eyes. That's not a ritual, she said. It's called good hygiene. Good hygiene, said Barrister Breachway with a laugh. The devoted among us need not worry about good hygiene. God will protect us. The members of the gallery nodded at each other in approval. That kind of attitude is exactly why our oldest resident is 47, said Isabella. Barrister Breachway shook his long, blonde mane like a majestic lion and prowled the courtroom floor. Several women swooned. Mr. Proctor found himself with his Bible. His Peter, the loveliest colour, whispered Miss Carter to Miss Atkins. Black and yellow like sunflowers they are. What say you, said Master Breachway? 
to the reported sightings of you taking to the skies on Saturdays after nightfall. A ludicrous accusation, said Isabella. I'm always way too smashed on a Saturday night to fly my broom. So you admit it, said Master Breachway. No, I'm simply saying that even if I could do it, I wouldn't fly drunk. It's irresponsible. Right, said Barrister Breachway, wringing his hands. And what say you to the accusations that you can change your appearance at will? Is that a sign of witchcraft, said Isabella. It's one of the many indicators, said Barrister Breachway. Pardon, said Isabella. I said it's one of the many indicators, said said Barrister Breachway. Can you come closer, asked Isabella. I'm 30, you know, my hearing is starting to go. Barrister Breachway stomped his foot like a petulant child and strode over to the accused's box. He leaned in and took a deep breath. I said, it's one. A flurry of screams rang out in the courtroom. Isabella had reached forward and ripped the hair off the barrister's head. Assault, cried the barrister, patting his shining scalp. I have been manhandled. Oh, don't be hysterical, said Isabella, waving around a handful of blonde hair. All I did was free you of this god-awful wig. Order, order, bellowed Judge Dalloway, as he hammered his gavel amidst the public outcry. He's hideous, screeched Miss Carter. A disgusting, hairless creature, proclaimed Mr. Proctor. And how did he become so grotesque in a matter of moments, said Miss Atkins. Suddenly she gasped and was at her feet. Her index finger pointed directly at Barrister Breachway. Witch, she shrieked. The barrister is the witch who blights our crops and balls our horses. More people began to take a stand, crying out for the barrister to be apprehended. Please, good men and women folk, pleaded Barrister Breachway. I'm no witch. Let the court record reflect the barrister Breachway denies the accusation of witchcraft, said Judge Dalloway. Actually, um, these are just doodles said the stenographer, holding out her parchment. I'm, I'm, I'm illiterate. The judge examined the drawings. They show great talent, said Judge Dalloway. The stenographer blushed. Unhand me, you foul wretches, screamed Barrister Breachway, as he was set upon by the public. They wrangled him into a standing position with his hands bound behind his back. Take him to the town square, yelled Mr. Thornbottom. We must examine him for the witch's mark. No, cried Barrister Breachway, as he was hoisted out of the courtroom. I have a mole on my back. It's benign. Judge Dalloway, the stenographer, and Isabella remained. Can I go now, said Isabella. I don't want to miss the walk of shame. It's my favourite part of these trials. Very well, said Judge Dalloway, with a flick of his wrist. See you next month, Miss Wilde. That's me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. No, that was brilliant. Rebecca's also an excellent artist, you know. She does all those sketches that I use as my, on, my, on my Facebook page. And now I'm going to read uh, a few poems followed by another story. This one is called Petty Complaints. We complain always about the aches that inhabit our everyday when the children don't live out the ambitions we had for them 
instead of just wishing they became good people and having them find happiness. When we do come to bear witness to something that inflicts real heartbreak, we find ourselves begging for those old horrors to return. We can't prepare for what life's sudden dark shadows cast on us, and before we know it, the life you live, the life you know so well and love, is changed forever, is forever gone. And this one is called Act Two. When I was small, our house seemed huge. The hall was a skating rink. We slid up and down in our stocking feet. Our adults seemed like gentle giants, smiling, playing our childish games. My heart would leap on my little chest when I would see Dad come home around the corner in his faraway gaze. His eyes would brighten up and his face lit up when he saw my face ignite at his coming home. As a baby, I remember not going to sleep until he came home. I'd fall asleep lying on his chest, drifting off to the sound of his heartbeat. And uh, this is a bit of a mad poem called I Remember. I remember my first day in school wondering why my mother would not give me hot milk on my cornflakes. They let me have milky coffee instead of milky tea, a way she forced me to stay with a neighbor while she worked until three. I remember as a child, I looked at my granny and I looked my granny in the eyes and said, you must cut the crust off my toast and smother it with jam. She left me with the blacksmith in his forge until three. Now we're all grown up and it is horrible being an adult. The carousel just keeps turning and we all walk about with doubts about. And there's also the dread possibility of all confirmed. And now I'm going to read uh, another part of, of Echoes called Crossroads. This is just where the main character, George, is going out with his pal. And, and they go, they go to, to, the, to a pub for the first time. Crossroad. On the way out the door wearing the new Wrangler jeans purchased with my hard-earned money, which I had saved over several weeks and bought in a corners of Caper Street one of the few shops where they're available in Dublin. School finished now, possibly for good. I have money in my pocket and I'm off to celebrate freedom. A short walk up the street, five doors to be exact, past Mrs. Dillon brushing her footpath with a fag in her mouth, mumbling under her breath in my direction, the fag bobbing up and down, stuck to her bottom lip. This brought me to the Ellis household, where my pal Desi Ellis lived. We've been pals for the past three years, not a long time, but me, childhood friends, seemed to go the wrong way once primary school finished. Some went off to different schools or in opposite directions, some for better, some for worse. Some of them thought I was too quiet, not tough. Others thought I was too rough and a bad influence. If anything, I was the one who was easily led. As I approached the Ellis house up the path, to the bright sky blue door, a colour that ruined the good mahogany, mahogany door. Coming from inside, the faint din of music could be heard, a strange fusion of music. Wind instruments, acoustic and electric piano, and electric guitar, all playing different tunes, different styles. From the power one playing jazz and saxophone, another playing God knows what on the electric piano, sounded like scales 
From upstairs came the sound of clarinetting and the guitar. Somehow there seemed to be classical music from a piano from inside the front door in the hall. To, to overcome the musical mayhem inside, I had to knock the, hard, knock the door harder. I could, say, could see a faint figure scurrying through the frosty glass in the door. Opening the door with a genuinely good-natured smile was Mrs. Ellis, a four-foot-nine bundle of energy, a face lined with life-worn wrinkles. Oh, the old Sagosha, how the hell are you? How you keeping well? Haven't seen you in ages. Are your mommy keeping well? How is your daddy? All questions out there without waiting for an answer. Ushering me, ushering me in, she called Desi's name out loud repeatedly, not realizing he was sitting head bent on the piano stool under the stairs where his piano was positioned, the only place available to put it, to put, uh, put it with his three older brothers claiming the parlor and the bedroom for their practice. Mrs. Ellis went on into the living room, leaving both of us on our own, turning our head at the door, saying, would you want to like some tea? I'm putting the kettle on. No, we don't want tea, said he rudely, declined for her, cutting her off in the process, dismissing her without even looking at her. This made me feel uncomfortable. I, could, I wouldn't dare disrespect my mother like that seemed to be normal in this house. The males were very much the masters of this house, with Mrs. Ellis running after them non-stop, out to the shop 70 times a day to get things the boys would take an ocean for, want something for their dinner, then something different. That's not in the house for their tea. All a normal routine for Mrs. Ellis. Degrading as it was, Mrs. Ellis seemed to thrive on it. Her whole life appeared to, re- to revolve around her four men. She could just ab- about be it to sit down and relax for the end of the day when one of them would want a cup of tea or a clean short for going out for work the next day. She would gladly do it smiling. Well, are you ready for tonight? This is the big one. Should be a good night, I said, excited at the prospect of letting her hair da- letting, letting our, our, our hair down and meeting up with the girlfriend. I am indeed, and maybe we might get served a few fragments of cider in Superfriend. He replied, rubbing his two hands together. He quickly ran upstairs to, to go to the Jackson, slash some, some brute aftershave. Down the stairs in three steps, grabbed his denim jacket and out the door, up the street with us. Desi shouting, I'm going out, ma. See you later. She came out running to the door. Have you a coat on you? The weather could change. I'm all right, ma. Go back in, will you? I'm not bleeding to myself. She threw your head and making a fuss, that one. My ma like that, I'd be killed by her, then resurrected by me dad and killed again. Then he would lecture my dead body about how one should worship and obey their mother, always show her respect, no matter what is said. It's only for your own good. You never answer back under any any circumstances. At this we were both startled by Mad Max, the mad guardian at the top of the street, who appeared from nowhere, growing growling menacingly at us with bare, bare teeth. Then he just made a run at him, shouting, fuck off, you feckin' idiot, you. You frightened the shit out of me. At which the dog scampered away to its hiding place behind a hedge at the, top of the, gar- at the garden at the top of the street. We walked down Cap- Capa Road, approaching the torch of the Annunciation. At this crossroads, we turned off to the left, then the row of shops and headed down Mellows Road towards the upper pen. We could always try the off license in the Shamrock pub, I said. 
What about walking down to the Autobahn pub and trying to get served? Doesn't your mother drink there? He he might get us a few pints. Or to try. What do you think? Not a bad not a bad idea. Say he was having the drink in the field at the back of the at the back of the tech. No need to go to go there anymore. The field between the church and the tech is is sorry. The tech is where we teenage boys went to drink flagons of cider before we were old enough to get served in pubs. Some of the lads were bad, and if my parents knew I was anywhere near them, they would be smack. They would be. They would. That would be. That would be me stuck in for the rest of my youth. But at this age, you don't see any danger until it slaps you in the face. The older ones we emulated and want to be like, we would copy them without, within reason. Some of them just made fun of us. Those of us could tell the difference between right and wrong only went so far. One of the one of them, a bright spark in the field that had. Sorry, I better start that section again. One bright spark asked me once in the field what class I had first thing on Monday morning. And like an idiot, I told him I had Miss Falcon for, for Irish in 1A. That was the first classroom in the main building. At this, he finished off his flagging, went over to 1A and put the glass bottle through the window. Now you have a free class on Monday, you owe me, he said, running away. Everybody else scarpered in shock. The lad doing this was Vincent McCann, nicknamed the Mentler. He was a very few he, he was a few years older than older than us and already had developed a serious drink problem. Tragedy waiting to happen, a senseless waste of life. Anyway, before long we were approaching the Audubon pub, we ended up there without having decided where we were going. This is a mystery, blattering and jabbering as we walked about tri- talked about trivial stuff. Before we knew it, we were approaching the door of the pub, telling each other to walk confidently towards the door as if we belonged in this environment. Pretend we are talking, don't show fear, as if we belong in there. Approaching the man in the door, deep down expecting to be torn away, we were shocked and amazed when he said, come on ahead, lads, without even looking at us. In the door, we strode like two gunslingers entering a saloon, the smoky atmosphere immediately got me, causing me to scoff at the cough and squint my watery eyes. Chris, my old my big brother, was over to us just as we were in the door, ushering us both with a tight grip on his arm into into a corner. What are you two does you flicks down in here? If your ma hears about this, she blame me. You know she will. No she won't. How will she find out? I won't tell her. Sure, and I, I don't know where, I don't know, I didn't know you were here anyway. We heard it was easy to get served, so we thought we'd chance it. Isn't that right? Desi said, no, I, I said, nudging him. Desi replied, Lamy, ah, now, Chris, we had no idea. Just taking a chance getting a guard up. Okay, go on in there and... I'll get them for you, Chris said, staring us in the direction of the snug at the front of the bar. Inhabiting the snug was an elderly couple, probably in their 70s, maybe 80s, or maybe late 60s. It's very hard to tell. 
about happy, smiley people. The woman had one of those expressive faces that always smiles. Even when negativity comes knocking, a smile and a glow hiding the sadness. The man eyed us suspiciously, nodded hello back to us, and then went back to talking to the woman, ignoring our presence. Chris returned with the two pints of bass, which he unceremoniously planted in front of us. How did I know it was bass? Well, it was from the big red letters on the side of the glass. You two behave yourself, right? This is my local. I don't want you two maggots ruining my good name. Chris didn't hang around long, and away he went, back to his buddies at the bar. We, we sat staring at the two pints of mahogany-coloured liquid, and each other, I picked up my pint and took as big a gulp, as big as I could take without gagging. I put the glass down with a false smile, hiding a grimace. Desi followed suit with a sour puss on him. As he put the glass down, his, his, it was his fault for trying to drink more than me. I noticed the elderly couple, the man's arm, draped around her shoulder, had vanished down her back, while at the same time looking straight into her eyes, whispering things to the woman that made her blush. I looked away, quickly trying not to notice. And the way Deji looked away and started talking talking about football, I knew he had noticed the same. We couldn't react or say anything in the close confines of the snub. We just talked, keeping a straight face. <laughs> Secretly, I was thinking about how fabulous it was for a couple of that age to still have their those amorous feelings for each other, hoping that I could meet someone who would be willing to stick with me through thick and thin who would look into my eyes the way these two do. I kept those thoughts strictly to myself. Very unmanly to have thoughts like this in the north side of Dublin in 1973. Soon our glasses started to empty and the thoughts of getting more beer into the heads. Which one of us is going to go to the bar and order the girl? That was the question. There was a hatch at the end of the bar into the snug where the elderly man got up and ordered his two gold labels and glasses of stout. But that would be a bit chancy. The barman had been able to see us. So we decided to go into the bar and take a chance ourselves. We left the company of the two elderly lovers and said goodnight, to which the two replied, See you, boys. The woman was probably relieved to see the... The man was probably relieved to see the back of us. Into the bar we went being assaulted by a thick cloud of cigarette smoke and noise coming from every direction. The TV, the TV blaring, much of the day. Everyone speaking in raised voices, shouting conversations across the bar. To my surprise, Chris returned from the jack, came out of the jacks. Are you two still here? Why didn't you stay in the snug? Dirty old fucker in there trying to ride his missus, getting embarrassed looking at them. Desi said, just going to go up and get two more gargles. I added, hoping Chris would offer to get them for us. Here, I'll go and get them for you, but give me the money. I'm not made of money. Smart ass like you would make me pay to. So up to the bar he went, returning with two pints. Chris disappeared and didn't hang around long. We got a, we got a free spot to stand with the lar- at the ledge to put our pints on. Just inside the snow, just outside the snow. We had a good view all around of being in, without being in too open a place or drawing it to the attention of the bar staff. 
we made ourselves at home watching what was left on the on the football. I was just about to lift my glass to my mouth and take a slug out of the beer when I spotted the elderly woman coming out of the slug, smiling at us. And when she passed, I nearly choked on my drink with the side of her dress caught inside her black cotton knickers. All I can, do, can deduce from the vision was that the old lady and the old fella must have been having a right canoe in session and the man dropping the hat. Daddy was all taking a mouthful of his beer and he spit it out when he noticed what was happening. We both looked at each other, tight-lipped, and when she was in the loo looking at the out of shop, we burst out laughing. I don't think she ever realized what happened when she returned. And we up and she smiled and she said hello. So we finished off our beer and left and headed off to the dance in St. Michael's. And now I have Simon Ferris coming out to read a few a few poems, isn't it? Okay. There you go. Thank you. I'm just going to read four poems. I'll just get through just uh, The first one's called The Tinner's Rabbits. A closed set for three years connect, to connect as one, without apology to the eye, more than one within a structure, its apology not logic-free continually. An open road of silken empire, take all six ears from Buddhist caves to Christian knaves. A meaning of the two, a trinity without you. 19, 98 years old, a white stone carving in a cellar. Longevity. A broken tennis, deified on painted wood. A ceiling in a synagogue, the holy broken trinity, cyclically. Sick of me, same energy as Ouroboros, eating its own, ta- its own tail. A neurosis of alchemi- or alchemical reviver, either will not fail, eternity. And the second one is called Tuscan Tooth. A crown of narwhal teeth, royal jewels of purpose. A cure from poison venom, snarling snakes to amber dragons. A breath of fire fell prey to ashes, dust-borne branches drawn from smoke. Flame-sparked mould, drink from pure, deadliest draught, stilled cure. Melancholy to the bone, unbroken lung. The third is called Contour. Skip for joy or to avoid, miss out to bear or roar, to claw and scratch, devour flesh or fear, to jump, to reach, a higher rush. To bow, to bend, be led, transformed, then left for dead again, to lead. To close a lock or look again, be close, connect, be fresh, be flesh. And the last one is called a golden bow. To walk among you, tread anew, all excitement lost. You stumble across this ruin before it can be found. Now or then will pass unto a new fate lost upon us. We trample, crushing all untold, as these broken pieces left to decay once more within. That's it. Thank you. I'm quite a quick reader. Okay. And now I'm going to read a few poems, starting with Now the Threshold Has Been Breached. Now the threshold has been breached, the shackles crash onto the floor. We are now free to walk barefoot on the concrete. See that all it does is chill the soles of our feet. Stand there and keep nodding like the dog in the dashboard. Do you even know what they're talking about? Maybe you do and it doesn't interest. When this all starts off, you drift off 
into your own cheerfully land of make-believe where everybody looks perfect without effort as if this really matters. In a perfect world, we wouldn't notice the shell we wear or what we have or where we come from. Our innerness would shine, dim the frivolous trinkets of our display. Tell us that it is okay to be ourselves and for us all to be free. And this is called The Poor Man's Love. Being in love is like a poor man begging for arms. A man in love sits upright, cup in hand, begging for the subject of his desire to look in his direction. You sit, hand in his arm. He has no nervousness at your touch. It elicits no thoughts or impulses. It feels just natural. You constantly push on a creation. He is often thought of being with you. In his head, in his imagined conversations with you, there's always found so many reasons why you wouldn't be interested in someone like him. He goes on to think about why he should and deserves to be on his own, convinces himself that being on his own is the best and natural way for him to be. He has no wish to have someone become his or for him to become a possession. He prefers seeing the world through his own eyes, not having the view reflected through the lens of another. So he doesn't ask her out. But sometimes he still dreams they could be together. But how always has that fear of rejection showing its ugly face. He, accept, he accepts all that he is. And now I'm going to read another part of the uh, story. It's the, the the main character arriving home after being out with his girlfriend in, for the day. It's called preparation. Entering the hall door, I could, I could hear Andy Williams blaring on the stereo. Mother sang along quietly as if embarrassed, even though she was on her own in the, in the living room. As I made my entrance, she turned the knob on the record player to reduce the volume without interrupting her knitting. Ah, uh, you're home. You're home on time. I thought you were going to be late. Were you with that one from the south side? She said dismissively. My mother had met Anna before. And I got the impression she didn't like her. I was with Anna. We had a good day. We went to Stephen's Green. I said almost under my breath. Mother lit another craven a cigarette. Where does she get these strange brands, I wondered. I hope you managed to stay out at the pond in Stephen's Green this time. She replied, glancing over her glasses in my direction, referring to a childhood incident when I accidentally walked into the pond, thinking I could walk on water. Am I ever going to hear the end of that? So I fell into the pond and made a show of myself, going home on the bus. and got drenched. That was ten years ago. And it's still funny after all these years. Did you get something to eat when you were out? There's some beef left there. I can put a plate together for you if you like, she said, shifting in her chair as if to get up, but not getting up. No, there's stay where you are, listening to your crappy music. I'll grab a sandwich. Do you want tea? Stupid question. When do you ever say no to tea? I can give you a crack in the ear. Still, only I'm nice and comfy here with my Andy serenading me, she distractedly said, as she picked up a stitch in her knitting. 
Okay, I'll get you your tea. What time are you going to the club tonight? About nine. I think it's early closing tonight, although we we might go to Burks. They open late with a restaurant license. She answered as, it, as I went out into the kitchen without replying. I could hear the faint, the faint sound of my mother still talking to the absent of me as I put the kettle on and rooted in the fridge for something to eat. I got the beef out, sliced four ticks like four thick slices of bread, rescued four bits of already cooked batch loaf, lovingly buttered them, and prepared two thick samples, as good as any dinner dinner I'd had. I went back into my mother with her mug of tea, milk, and three sugars. Where's the biscuits? You can't be giving me tea on, on its own, can you? You don't be going off leaving me talking to myself like that again, you fucking idiot, you. I said I was going to get something to eat. You weren't listening, too wrapped up in your shite music, I replied, while going back into the kitchen to get my samba and returning instantly to the living room to eat it in comfort. Don't get crumbs in that couch or carpet. If you do, you can get the Hoover out. My mother scolded as I sank into the couch and picked up the Irish Independent newspaper. The headlines read that Nixon is, Nixon's is not a crook, as so he says, a major war is breaking out in the Middle East, in the Middle East, and Syria and Egypt invaded Israel. I ignore all that and look at look at the music page. Rory Gallagher playing the stadium. Give me early Clapton and Jeff Beck any day. Where's that? Strange, he's not here, asleep on the sofa, snoring his head off. He asked. Well, he went to the Shamrock this morning, but Mr. Kenny and had and I and he had to get his head down after dinner. Told me to call him at seven. She replied without looking at me. It was something hard to tell when she was thinking. It was sometimes hard to tell what she was thinking. Sometimes she responded like a person in a trance in a different world. They often felt like we were a hindrance disturbing her thoughts. She would either give me a, a sad sigh of re- resignation when answering our demands or respond with sudden rage and anger. We kept away from her when she noticed her in this mood. Occasionally she would snap and lash out without whatever was at her hand, be it a wooden spoon or metal ladle. You, you could get anywhere from the back of the legs to the head. This very seldom happened. It appeared to me it appeared to me as if the pressure of having to do everything in the house and look after us us lot would build up and she would just explode, blowing off steam. It would be over in seconds and she would be extremely remorseful, in tears, trying her best to comfort whoever had got the beating. It seemed to happen a lot to me. Maybe it was just a handful, or maybe it was just I was just a little bollocks. I often ended up having a dreadful migraine headache after some of her tantrums. And when the headaches were bad, she would put hot cloth on my forehead. And once for a bad, an extremely bad headache, that I couldn't shake, she gave me a Valium tablet, which knocked me out until the next afternoon. Most of the time, it was relaxing home. Dad was out working most of the time, and we were, we were in and out all day, if it was dry. The only time we sat in together was after dark, midweek, watching TV. Occasionally, I would be sent to the van shop around the corner to get goodies, and we would watch whatever was on the box that night.
Ma would sometimes have her Empress Express, which looked and tasted like licorice all sorts on steroids, without the licorice. She would give us all one each and eat the rest herself. I could hear stirring from upstairs. That's the awful end now. I'll put the kettle on, I said. Good man, get me a refill when you're there, Ma said, holding her empty cup up. I often wondered how she can live in Dublin for 20-odd years and still have that gentle Kilkenny Carlo accent. No trace of Dublin at all. I went back out into the kitchen and, kitchen and put the kettle on. I could hear Dal's electric razor humming from the bathroom. And then I got the aroma of his aftershave, Old Spice, wafting down the carpeted stairs and the creak of his descending footsteps. His overpowering scent and presence now blocked the doorway into the living room. He seemed to demand attention even before he said anything. He stood fixing his gold cuttings on the, on the sleeves of his purest white starch shirt. Kettle just boiled out there, I said. And when I heard you moving down, I put it on, hearing you move, moving, moving downstairs. Mother said, without batting an eyelid, winking at me when his back was torn. Finger to the, to the lips at the same time to hush me up. White lies were allowed per mother's moral compass, just part of a person's sense of humour. If you don't cause pain or draw blood, it's acceptable. But what if you don't bleed easy and are good at hiding pain? Silence for the merest of seconds as dad raided the fridge, preparing for his tea. No matter what situation or how busy a day it was, dad always had to get his four square meals, breakfast, dinner, tea and supper. He could only he could be only in from work at eight and have his dinner and tea one after the other. Take a break until ten or half ten, then have his supper. Obsessed with getting his four square meals. He arrived back now with a dinner plate loaded with cold beef, lettuce, eggs, tomatoes, cheese, and a separate plate packed with loaf, batch loaf and a huge mug of tea. Are you not having something to eat with that tea, da? I said. It's bad manners to talk when my mouth is full, son, he said in response, with breadcrumbs splattering all over me. Mother burst out laughing, telling me that'll teach you to try and be a smart ass with the master smart ass himself. Silence again, as the, the diary of Irish agricultural life, the Reardon's, was starting on TV. What shenanigans will, will be going on with Tom and Mary's household? Will Benji and Batty behave themselves? If that keeps eating now, we will find out, unfortunately, I thought. Mother lit another cigarette, cigarette in the direction of the tea. Mother lit another cigarette, looking in the direction of the TV, with her eyes wandering off into some distant place. Where did she go when she stared into space like that? Was it back to the farm she was reared on, and where we went every summer for the duration of the holidays? Exiled. Exhaled smoke drifted up towards the ceiling, like thoughts stopped escaping her, never to return. As soon as Dad spoke, she snapped out of it. Are you ready? I'm going. I'm ready to go any time. And what about you? Are you going? Are you going like that? Can you not wear slacks instead of those jeans? He said, speaking to both of us, with me getting it last. I just have to go up and change my clothes. They're laid out and, re- and ready upstairs. 
I watched this first, Ma said, with me then muttering, what's wrong with what I had on? I wore it, I wore it out today, on a date already today. They're still clean. Jeans, they're work clothes. You just wear them when you're, when you're working on the building site or on the farm, not when you're going out socializing, and especially not when you're entertaining a young lady. Young lady, my arse, mother says under her breath. No point in talking to you any, anyway. The younger generation think they know everything. Even with no life experience, you have all the answers. My dad complained. And the big moral dilemmas of the day, whether, uh, whether to wear slacks or jeans, should I comb my hair to the right or left? I was saying when mother, mother jumped in, telling me not to answer my father back, and giving me a, lit, a light clip on the ear, she departed the living room to go upstairs and get dressed. The Reardon's music played as mother, mother's light, barely audible footsteps could be heard ascend, ascending the stairs. Father reached over for the paper from the coffee table. Well, how did your exams go there on Friday? That was, that, that was your last day in school. The last for now until September. Results will be in August. And how do you think you got on? My dad said. He asked me bluntly. Oh, by the way, I put in a word for you at the pub next door to my place in town. And you have a, you have a job to start on Monday, Monday next week. Apprentice barman, well paid, always plenty of work in the bar game. You never hear a barman being made redundant. I guess my mind is made up for me then. I'm not going back to school, so the results make no no difference, I said, annoyed that I wasn't being given a choice. The assumption that I was that I was going to to fail to fail is what hurt deeply. I kept this fact buried. Maybe they were right. Maybe I was only suited for manual labour. Recent new interests and encouragements from the English teacher was relevant. Sure, look, you can work away for the summer, and if, by some miracle, you get good results in your exams, you can quit and go back to school. No harm, no foul, he said, meaning I was going to fail, so don't build up your hopes. Mother appeared in the doorway with a coat and talcum powder, sent a passing dad going up the stairs to the toilet. Typical, rushes everybody, then keeps us all waiting. Mother, mother berated him. And now I'd like, I'm going to finish with a few poems, and that'll be it then, okay? This one is called You Walk. You walk in silence, head lowered to avoid any searching glance. Fingers fidget. You look at the ground as if you can't see where, where you walk. You push an imaginary strand of hair out of your eyes. You shake when someone speaks to you. I nervously answer. Breathe in deeply and go on your way. And this is called uh, Pleasure and Pain Are Sisters. Sometimes when you go after something that makes you feel good, you sacrifice what you know to be right. Because, you feel, because, because something feels good doesn't mean that it is good. Watch the black cat change in color before it crosses the path. Or watch the older woman walk under a ladder 
watch the watch the lady blessed with beauty make the sign of the cross at the mention of someone in pain and shed a tear for the stranger who suffers loss and this is called who are you no one special through the lace curtain i am invisible to the world i'm a mirror looking out apart safe from being judged from the outside movement can be seen sudden movement heads turning does anyone really care who we are what we say they just nod nod go on their way before i walk into a room i freeze move on past pretend to myself i made a mistake the fear wasn't real i just walk on around the block shake off the cobwebs of doubt and and ask why would i be noticed no need to plan every word in advance or anticipate the answer this doesn't make sense life is never that predictable no one is going to is going to notice you why would they who are you no one special and now i'm going to finish with a poem called if if you loved me as you say you do some would disappear behind the gray cloud our day would turn into light our world turn upside down if you loved me as you say you do you would show me how to do it right to cut straight not across as you know i should and that's my reading done thank you <clears throat> wow that was incredible gordon thank you gordon Michael. ferris everyone <laughs> i'd like you to do me a favor Okay. All right. I'd like you to read that last poem again, if. The last one? Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, That's the first time I ever got requests. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. If if you love me as you say you do, the sun would disappear behind the grain cloud. Our day would turn into night, our world turn upside down. If you loved me as you say you do, you would show me how to do it right, to cut straight, not across, as you know I should. Wow. For me, that particular piece encapsulates everything I've heard from you, Simon, and Rebecca, whom I'd like to thank as well. Where do you go from here, Gordon, with your work? What, what's next for you, my friend? Excuse me. Um, I hope to try. I, I, I've had my first collection of short stories published today, mm-hmm. and uh, I I hope to try and get a collection of poetry published now. I had intended to try the first. I, I I thought I didn't actually think I would be getting a book of short stories published first. I thought I would. I was going to attempt to get a collection of poems published first. You know so. It worked out back the front the way I the way I had planned it, you know. All right, all right. Now I must must ask, which do you prefer, poetry or short stories? I I, I love poetry and short stories. I also like uh, plays as well, drama. Oh, oh like wow! As well. Okay, <laughs> <clears throat> that's fantastic. That's fantastic, my friend. Well. Yeah. I want to thank you so much. Well, thank you, Michael, for having me. 
Yeah, you as well. Yes, you're more than welcome. So again, everyone, Echoes is available now on Amazon. It was released today. Gordon, as I said earlier, is an award-winning poet. Now he is a superstar story, <laughs> short story writer. <laughs> you're incredible, Gordon, and I'm so glad that Thank I know you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. All right. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. All right. And as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry or short stories ring somewhere throughout the land. All right. Goodbye. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.